Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins. And today, once again, you don't sound happy here with Daniel. Well, it never got old before, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> I'm here with Daniel M., a uh, very familiar voice to most of you, uh, and even new listeners. He's back. He's back again. Hello, hello. <clears throat> is anyone else saying hello, hello? Or is that someone? No. Yeah. That's still your thing, man. I think that's a Canadian Daniel thing. Like polite. Hi, everyone. Hello, hello. <laughs> Howdy. Um, <laughs> I, I think... I think Janae may have done a hello, hello, hello. Well, she's she's really nice too, so maybe it's just a Super nice Super nice. Maybe it is. I'll never say hello, hello, I guess. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're continuing our series on lies leaders believe, and I would say, Daniel, I'm ready to talk about the greatest lie that leaders believe. I know you and I both share... The sentiment that this is the number one lie. So why don't you break it down for us? Yeah, it's the name of the book. It's the name of the book. You are what you do. And even as I was uh, with B&H trying to figure out what are we going to call this book? We're like, why don't we just call it by the lie that <laughs> really most of us, I mean, especially in a Western context, are conditioned to believe, right? I mean, you are what you do. The the Subtitle of the book is super important and six other lies about work, life, and love. But really, when you think about this lie, you are what you do. As children, we're asked what we want to do when we grow up, right? That's where it begins. As adults, we're asked what we do for work. And in certain countries, it's asked quicker and sooner than others. And if it if it takes longer for it to be asked, I think we're all trying to size the other person up. Not to say that that's a good thing, but that our minds kind of go there, right? And, and we're asked what we do for work. And based on their answer, they kind of go up or down the social scale or whatever other paradigm we think about. It. I mean, isn't that why Jesus said what he said as it relates to don't judge people by their outward appearance? And don't try to sit uh, at, you know, the, the right-hand side. And anyways, all, all the stuff that he talked about. And then at the end of our lives, aren't we measured by what we've done? I mean, this is where the lie comes from. The this obit. core lie. Yeah. The obituary. Oh, yeah. Completely. Completely. Uh, I do think it's interesting to go back uh, to the very beginning of your, when you started out, you said, hey, you're asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? I think the more common question and telling question is what do you want to be when you grow up? Hmm. Interesting. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And and then and then somebody will say a uh, uh, firefighter. Well, oh, okay. It's like I'm already conditioning you to find your identity in what you do. Oh wow! From the very beginning, dude. That's <laughs> that's. You should so put good. that in the book, Daniel. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Too bad it's already out. Maybe second edition. <laughs> second edition. <laughs> No, but it's true, That's isn't really it? really good. I mean, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's so good. Yeah. And we're, <clears throat> we're human beings. We're human beings. We're not human doings. And for me as an Enneagram 3, and I didn't integrate the Enneagram into the book at all because Christina right. and I are still learning about it. But as I flesh it out and, and dig a little bit deeper into the Enneagram, I'm like, oh my goodness, 
every single one of these lies is likely more appealing to one of the numbers than not. And I wonder if the name of the book is You Are What You Do, because that's the core lie of the of Enneagram threes. And, and that's what I am. So it's, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, we've actually got uh, Ian Cron coming up <clears throat> on the podcast. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's going to be really. And speaking of Janae, who's really nice, you should see her when somebody else um, has put their name in to co-host with Ian Cron instead of her. <laughs> There's like, no hello, hello going on there. <laughs> yeah, no way. <laughs> she's, she's foot sweeping people and taking them to the floor. That is awesome. That is awesome. <clears throat> All right. So let's talk a little bit more about this. I mean, I am going to try to refrain from one-liners. Okay. Because I have so many one-liners on this doing thing, doing versus developing, mm. you know, all, all the stuff in the church. How do we almost immediately see this play out in the church? Yeah, well, doing doing has become a badge of honor. Doing is a status symbol, and doing has become the way to define ourselves. And we see that at at any conference or gathering of pastors that you go to. We go to how big is your church, and if you're not as bold enough to ask that, and I hate when that's asked. But oh, if you're not bold enough to ask that, everyone's trying to figure it out anyway. <laughs> and it's right. in, 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 the, in the back of their head. So we go straight there, not because we think that everything's going to be better and our conversation is going to be better when we do that, but it's just become such a part of who we are. So, I mean, we see it even from that, right? From the introductions. Oh, totally. And... For instance, writing a book, mm-hmm. Daniel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will be like, well, I don't really have anything to say until I write a book. Mm-hmm. Do, you know what I'm, uh, do you know what I'm thinking? Or not what I'm thinking. What I'm, what I'm saying is <clears throat> um, in my head, the lie I believe is until I write a book, I really don't have anything to say. Interesting. Interesting. And it's even a... <sighs> There's even a stratosphere or a class within that, right? So right. books have become the new business card. But Oh, and then it's who's your publisher. Yes. And if it's oh, self-published, self-published, yeah, um, then there's a stratosphere. Yeah. And yeah, there is that in that. And then it's who is your publisher? Or, okay, you have a publisher. Are they a hybrid publisher? Are they this? Are they that? Or And then, I mean, it's it's stupid. It's absolutely stupid how we go there. And not everyone's, not everyone, I mean, writing a book is incredibly long and arduous and difficult to do, so, but, and, and it's absolutely not true that if you don't write a book, you don't have any good ideas. That's, that's not oh, true sure. at all, yet. It's a lie we believe. It is a lie we believe, yeah. So, um, okay, uh, you know, going back into the uh, church context, I think what's interesting to me is, you know, our listeners would know I will frequently go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Ephesians 2, 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you balance the fact that Ephesians 2, 10 says we're God's workmanship <clears throat> and there's specific things that he's prepared in advance for us to do? Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no getting away from doing right. And even for me as a three on the Enneagram, I mean, I'm an achiever and I like checking things off and even behind this, um, on my computer right now, I have a bunch of check boxes for things that I need to do today and, and things that I need to continue to do for my book and, and my calendar's full. I just of have that. 14 <laughs> windows open. I got lots of windows open too. You must have, you must have like given that to me. It must have just rubbed off on working with you. But there's, so happens. there's a lot that we need to do, right? There, there, there is, and we can't get away from that. But where do you find your identity? Is, is, your identi- is your identity on the things that you do and the things that you've done and the things that you're going to do? Or is your identity on what Jesus has done for you? And is that enough? There's a huge difference on that. And that's why Ephesians 2, there's eight and nine come before 10. <laughs> eight and nine is what Christ has done for us. And then doing is then a response in verse 10. Right. It's not by works, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he's got stuff for me to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's understanding that, that yes, it's a free gift, but it comes res- with responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love what uh, Tim Keller wrote. This was a New York Times article, and, <coughs> and I'll just read it for you. And, it, and it's all about the, the, the way that we place our identity in and what we do. Here's what he said. So many college students do not choose work that actually fits their abilities, talents, and capacities, but rather choose work that fits within their limited imagination of how they can boost their own self-image. There were only three high-status kinds of jobs, those that paid well, those that directly worked on society's needs, and those that had the cool factor. Because there's no longer an operative consensus on the dignity of all work, still less on the idea that in all work, we are the hands and fingers of God serving the human community. In their minds, they had an extremely limited range of career choices. That means lots of young adults are choosing work that doesn't fit them or fields that are too highly competitive for most people to do well in. And this sets many people up for a sense of dissatisfaction or meaningless in their work. Right. I mean, we've been conditioned, in other words, both from within and without to over identify ourselves with our jobs. And we think that when we get that job, that great thing that we can finally add to our resume or the the letters after our name, the title, whatever that is, uh, we think that that's going to satisfy that internal craving for meaning. And that's what all this is driven for uh, or driven by and, and our drive for a particular quality of life. But when we find that job that boosts our self-image and pays the bills, I mean, or if we even ever find that job. <laughs> we, yeah. and, and if we don't, that's why the gig economy exists, right? If we don't find one that, that pays all the bills, then we just get a side hustle here, a gig there. And that doesn't hurt anyone, right? Um, just get another thing that you do. And, and that's kind of how it, the cycle gets perpetuated in why we believe that we are what we do. On this podcast, we equip our listeners with the absolute best resources to help their churches thrive. So if you're looking at launching a thriving church in a rented venue or perhaps a new one that you own, I would encourage you to check out the team at Portable Church. Portable Church Industries equips churches meeting in alternative venues with total solutions so that you can launch strong, be reproductive, and thrive in your community. 
For over 25 years, they've partnered with church planters and multi-site leaders, mastering creative, intelligent, and effective portable church solutions so that you and your team can stay focused on the thing that really matters, and that's building disciples. If you want to see what this looks like, visit portablechurch.com how has this continued to shift in culture like where where do you see this where do you see this going is the is the pendulum almost shifted is mm. is it going to shift further well there's there's three <laughs> unintended consequences when we believe this lie that we are what we do three unintended consequences when this is the primary lens in which we measure ourselves when our being is defined by our doing the first thing the first unintended consequence is that we're going to feel an enormous amount of pressure to do more so that we can get more have more and be more but it's kind of like laundry it, it never ends, right? <laughs> like, right. The dishes, you've done it. And then you're like, oh my goodness, why is there so much more to do? And and it just doing more and accomplishing more then leads us to uh, you have, have more pressure to do more and be more and have more and get more. So there's this pressure that believing this lie, that the unintended consequence of pressure, the other um, unintended consequence is platforming, platforming. The, the, the lie that we believe that, hey, in order for me to, do more and be more and get more, I need to have a platform. I need to have a platform. And and yes, platforms in and of themselves are neutral, but the problem is that desiring for and building your life on, on getting that platform often opens the door to a compartmentalized life. It, what ends up happening is you then begin separating your private and public life. And as it grows over the years, fewer and fewer people are let in on the inside because you have to create this persona, this platform as to who you want the world to be. So even when you look at what you post on it, on, on social media or on Instagram, you're like, well, I can't post that. That's too real. That's my inner. So I, I it's, it's going to go against this public life. And that's why, right? That is why. It was so shocking to hear of Robin Williams committing suicide, right? It was so right. shocking to hear of Anthony Bourdain's and Kate Spade's suicides as well, right? We're like, whoa, look at their platform. Look at all that they've done. Look at all that they've achieved. If I only do what they do and get what they have, then I'm going to be as satisfied as them. But <laughs> there was such a divide between their inner and outer world that, I mean, it's unfortunately, it, it ended up the way it did. So, so those are two of the unintended consequences, pressure and platform. The third unintended consequence is that we're going to, uh, we're going to pretend we're going to pretend because if we can't keep up with the pressure and, and building a platform isn't going as well as you thought, then the next best option seems to be just to pretend right? We think right. you got to fake it till you make it. You got to buy followers on social media. You know, you're going to, and here's, here's the thing. I love listening to the podcast, how I built this. And right. when you listen to that, you're like, oh my goodness, all these startups, so many of them faked it till they made it. <laughs> <laughs> they padded they their numbers. They paid people to purchase their products. They did, they did all that. And not all of them, obviously, but you're like, well, if it worked for them, then, and, and if they hacked their way to success, then it should, it probably works for me too. Right. 
But the problem with pretending is that it always leads to anxiety because you're always looking over your shoulder and you're like, well, when's, when am I going to be found out? When are people going to finally figure out that I'm a fake? And that's where you get the whole idea of um, the imposter syndrome. Mm. Okay. You know, based on that idea of, of pretending, we, we both have experienced and, and some of the mutual uh, friends, we, we both have experienced the tragedy that happens when somebody does fall. Mm. How, how does that, how does that come about? Yeah, there's, there's implosion that happens, right? And our friend, Eric Geiger, co- your boss, your former boss, my boss's boss, uh, boss daddy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> now in California. I mean, he, he wrote a book, right? How to, isn't it how to ruin your life? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about it right now. The black cover. It's an. It's, it's a great book. It's such a I, great book. I and I don't know that enough people read it for it to like catch, but mm-hmm. it is a really good book for leaders. Yeah, and it talks how about how not to ruin your life, yeah. or no, how to ruin your life. How to, how to how um, well it, he talks about how not to anyway. Essentially, he talks about how not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you think about it that way, it's it's there's implosion that happened, and and how did it happen? There is a divide. From between their inner and outer life, right? That second unintended consequence of needing to build a platform. There is this pressure, this pressure that kept on building up to do more, to be more, to get more. And and here's the here's the crazy thing about this. All right, I remember having a conversation with a pastor who who their friend uh, was like literally high flying they're going to fly to Geneva and then to London and then go on a yacht. And then like, literally that's what they do in a week. And it's just, Oh yeah, of course. And then they're going to have big parties here and there. And, and they're in that social class, that upper echelon, you know, the echelon stratosphere of society. And here's the thing. They weren't always there, but when they were getting close and they were invited into that, then it was a new level of friends. It was a new level of life. And I'm like, literally, who in the world flies from one vacation destination part of Europe to a completely different part of Europe after only having a dinner in Geneva? Like just having dinner in Geneva. And you're like, oh, okay, now it's time to go back to London and maybe I'll go back to Geneva tomorrow evening if I want, but I'm just going to take my private helicopter or my private plane. Like who literally who lives like that other than James Bond? <laughs> Who's not? I don't know. Yeah. But when you're in that upper echelon, that's the life that you're like, well, I need to, I need to now have my own private jet because, because oh, who flies coach, who flies commercial when there was a day where you were like, oh my goodness, I got bumped up to premium economy, premium <laughs> economy, right? <laughs> and then you get to first class and you're like, oh, who flies premium economy? Well, that's that's the problem with this lie and believing this lie and the pressure that gets built up. And then all of a sudden you find yourself pretending, right? Because you're faking it till you make it. And it just it just keeps on building. And that divide between your inner and outer life continues to grow until you just can't hold it anymore. You can't go on anymore. And that's where we see these implosions happen. Well, yeah. And then you, it gets so, you tell it so often mm. and it becomes so ingrained into, you know, who you are, you you believe it yourself. Yeah. And, and so then uh, what's I mean, interesting. I, yeah. 
What, what, here, let me just quickly go, go on that point. What's really interesting though, what's really interesting is when you look at these individuals that did fall and that did catch and, you know, multi, that, that were caught in multiple years of adultery or, or whatever addiction that they've had, um, they weren't, the, 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 the longer they lived in it, the higher they got up in it, they actually, a lot of them wanted to be found out. They wanted, it was like a cry for help. And they weren't as right. diligent in keeping the secrets because they couldn't stand the divide between the inner and outer life. And they just wanted it all to come crashing down. And it's interesting how it's kind of, they, they, they begin opening the door uh, to, to this because the pressure's too much to hold up. Hmm. Okay. So I, I do want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, there's been pastors, uh, in press and other places where, or just ones that we know that may not be, you know, on a national scale, but, but they're known. Uh, how does somebody come back from this? So I think part of this yeah. is not just what you do, but the lie that you are what you've done. Mm. I mean, I can remember early in ministry, um, with Satan on my shoulder saying, who are you to talk to these students? Do you remember what you were doing mm. when you were in high school? Um, you know, that lie that you cannot get over uh, or come back from something that you've done, that that God can't, you know, make that a re redemptive story or redemptive part of your story. Yeah, this is, um, this is why the scriptures are so incredible, especially the life of David. And that's that's a story that that Eric talks about in his book and he, and he talks about, you know, David's adultery and, and his life and, and what all that happened. But David was incredibly meaningful for me too. I remember early on in ministry where I was, the ministry was growing in Montreal and Christina and I loved it there. And I mean, it was just, it was incredible. The evangelistic effectiveness of the church. And I mean, we just loved being a part of the church. And then I was invited onto staff of a church in Korea that had 50,000 people. And it was like, I would be an idiot, an absolute idiot to say no to this opportunity. Like who in the world right. gets to pastor at a church of 50,000 <laughs> people? So it was, I, I was so, I so believe this lie that I was what I did and and that I was like, well, regardless of how long we stay there, I mean, it's on my resume and there's just, you know, it just kind of went on like that. And, and God's so gracious. He's so gracious. We went and the ministry was growing. It was fruitful. It was incredible, but then it all came crashing down and it was taken away. And uh, my, I was even discerning, am I even called to the ministry in the first place? And, and it, it all came crashing down and we moved back to Canada. And, and I talk about this story, in, in the book, uh, actually, if, if this is actually the first time I've really talked about what happened in Korea because we didn't really want to talk about it. It was so fresh. Uh, but I talk about it um, a, a few times in the book. And, and, and when I came down and um, I actually was invited to a retreat in Calgary to, to speak to young adults there. And I was trying to figure out what to preach on. And in the meantime, we were jobless, homeless, moneyless, everything, all three of Christina and I and our, and our, our first daughter, Victoria, all living in one little room in my parents' house in Vancouver, 
while our savings kept on going down, down, down. And I put my resume everywhere. Literally, I was like, okay, I'm going to put my resume to this little small church who, I mean, they would like, it would be a dream for them to hire me. I mean, with everything that I've done, this is like, uh, whatever, it's just going to be my backup option. And, And literally for five months, no one called me back. No one called me back. And as I was preparing for that retreat to speak at that retreat, I was, um, I audited this course at Regent College with Eugene Peterson. It, it, was a, it was an audio course that he had done in the past, but basically he walked through the life of David and I was like, oh my goodness, I am putting on Saul's armor. I am Saul. I am living my life based on my accomplishments and, and all of mm-hmm. this. And, and I realized that God called me out of that into the desert. And when you compare the life of David and the life of Saul, What's fascinating is that one of the biggest differences is that David went to the desert and he was in the desert multiple times where Saul wasn't, at least not that what what was recorded. And for David, after he was anointed as king and after he was called to be king and, and God's favor was abundantly on him, he was in the desert. And it was in that desert that God shaped his character deepened his prayer life, made him into the man that he was. And yeah, David messed up. He messed up, royally messed up. Yet he had that soft heart, that prayer life that God so developed in him through those desert moments that Saul did not have. So I realized for me, and I'm going back to, I know it was a long-winded way of answering your question, but it's, it's those desert moments. It's how do we maintain soft hearts How do we maintain soft hearts no matter what our accomplishments are and what we've done or what our resume is, regardless of how big your church is or how small it is, how do we find our identity in what Christ has done for us, not in what we are doing and remain nimble and and humble and soft in, you know, just coming before the Lord daily, not with our titles, but simply as a child of God and just come with that. Because I think if we do that, and we continually do that, then regardless of what comes our way, we're going to have that right heart. I love that. I love that. Um, And honestly, I think that's a great place uh, for us to wrap up Mm -hmm. simply because if you you look around and you look at guys that we know that have gotten shot out of the saddle, it is that compartmentalization of their life. But also I think it is that contriteness that they do start to believe their own press or they just get so shut off that, you know, their heart is an echo chamber. Um, Mm. And they don't take the time to daily, Mm. daily repentance. That's what I think keeps your heart uh, soft and contrite is if there's something you you have something to repent for um, pretty much on every hour, I would think, mm. uh, if you're anything like me. Yeah. Um, but making sure that that is part of, you know, your daily process has to be has to be key. Yeah. So good. So good. All right. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, Thank you for listening. And please hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review.